Why Catholic is made possible by generous patrons. If you're blessed by this podcast, consider supporting it by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Link is in the show notes. Original designs on sweatshirts, t-shirts, hats, decals, and more. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks for supporting Why Catholic. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. While typically these episodes run about 17 minutes and focus on a particular Catholic topic, I like to occasionally sprinkle in interviews with those living out their Catholic faith. For this episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Father Christopher Gray and talk about the ongoing Eucharistic revival and the upcoming Eucharistic rally for the Diocese of Salt Lake City. Father Gray is the pastor at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Park City, Utah, which is my home parish, and he is the point person for the Diocese of Salt Lake City in regards to the Eucharistic Revival, as well as the Eucharistic Rally that will take place on Sunday, July 9th, 2023, at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. Here's my interview with Father Christopher Gray. Well, thank you so much, Father Gray, for joining me for Why Catholic. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is fun. I love the opportunity. So I want to start off with talking about the Eucharistic Revival. Uh, The U.S. Council of Bishops has called for a Eucharistic Revival, and I'm sure those who regularly attend Mass know, have heard Eucharistic Revival. But maybe those who don't or maybe who aren't as familiar with the term, can you walk us through what is a Eucharistic Revival? What does that mean? What does it look like? Cool. First of all, there is a bit of confusion about the nomenclature. The rally is this thing this weekend. The revival is the big program, and the big program, even though it is big and national, is ultimately a grassroots effort. So the first stage was the diocesan stage. That is to say, dioceses, individual local churches throughout the country, figuring out, and I mean that, figuring out, considering what could we do to promote devotion to understanding of the Blessed Sacrament. Then a parish stage at the more local level where people actually go to church, which is right now. That's begun now and continues on until next summer. That one is part of this grassroots idea, perhaps even more ambiguous because it really does rely upon the people in parishes, pastors, their teams, to think about what are the ways in which they can best approach their people with the idea of Eucharistic devotion, understanding the Eucharist, and so on. Frankly, it's very coherent with the idea of the synod and the listening sessions that we had a couple years ago for that, to be able to look at what people actually think and maybe be able to change some hearts and minds and evangelize and bring them to an even better understanding of the Eucharist. And finally, the national stage. So next summer, there's a National Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis. Now, I'm not entirely certain about the numbers, but it's the first one in an outrageously long time. And uh, there was a time in the history of the United States when there were a number of Eucharistic Congresses happening, but it's no longer part of our regular practice. So this is a pretty cool generational kind of activity. The grassroots idea of the whole thing is insofar as 
it really is dependent on what is happening at the most local level. That is to say, there is not a mandate that we must do more Eucharistic adoration. There is not a mandate that Mass should be different or something like that, but rather to empower pastors, their teams, and by pastors I mean bishops, the pastors of the parishes, really anyone involved in ministry in the whole United States, to frame their work in a Eucharistic mindset. And tell me a little bit about the Eucharistic Congress, these congresses that used to happen in the past. What is what, what did that entail? So a Eucharistic Congress is some kind of massive gathering where people come together from, let's say, the whole country for the sake of being able to talk about the Eucharist, to celebrate the Eucharist. I'm not really the best one to ask. That being said, I did kind of take that idea and make it for our rally this coming weekend here locally, that is say the church in Utah. And the idea of Eucharistic Congress is by no means an American thing. There have been and are Eucharistic Congresses all over the world. If anything, perhaps we could even think of a moment like World Youth Day coming up as being a really good example of what a Eucharistic Congress is like. Hmm. A different kind of tone and a different kind of orientation, but in general, it's a giant gathering for the celebration ultimately of mass and uh, the eucharistic revival is at least partly in response to the pew research poll that said that uh showed that 30 percent, only 30 percent of catholics believe that the eucharist is the body and blood of jesus and eucharist is kind of a big deal for us catholics so why do you think that so few um so few believe in what the catholic church teaches about the eucharist or why is it that so many disagree? Yeah, it's a very strange set of numbers, those. If anything, from that particular study, one very surprising part is that there's a group of people, about 20%, who understand what the church teaches, but don't really follow it or believe it. That's really very weird to me, because we have at least prima facie in terms of what the numbers are trying to say i suppose this disconnect between this is what the church teaches and i know that but i don't quite believe that okay if anything the orientation of the eucharistic revival in the united states is part of something called the new evangelization which you know very well the whole point of being able to try to evangelize the people who are already content in their knowledge of doctrine or faith or whatever. Not because we want people to score higher on an ecclesiastical SAT, but rather because we want people to believe and have the faith. And our faith is very intently that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The reason for this is not just because right now we need a better Eucharistic faith, but rather, we always need to understand the faith more. And we could even go through history and think about the various moments when, 
For example, Eucharistic miracles have occurred, almost all of them, because someone, perhaps the priest or someone else, has had some kind of lapse of faith or some kind of inclusion of doubt. Kind of the famous ones of Lanciano or Vieto, those are really about doubt, but being made firm again. Or we could also think about how Eucharistic practices themselves have come into being, like how Eucharistic adoration is very much a response to the time of folk not understanding entirely very well that the physical human nature of a person is a good thing because it is made by God, and that the human spiritual nature is not superior simply because it is spiritual. If anything is tremendously anthropological, the reason why we have Eucharistic adoration, to say that the physical and the spiritual are both good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> what a crazy idea. But at different times and different places, this had to be stated clearly. And so here, in this time, in this place, we are stating this, that we do truly believe in the body and blood of Christ and in the sacrament that makes it present to us. Now, I grew up in a Baptist tradition, as you know, and we talked about communion being symbolic. So the, the cracker and the juice, that's just symbolic of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Um, in a nutshell, could you explain a little bit about why, do, what, why does the Catholic Church believe and promote that the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus? Very emphatically, Jesus says so himself. This is the John chapter 6 and on dialogue, which is very intensely to be held. And also, certainly in the practice and the history of the religion, this is what we have held. Why do we do this? Because it's the faith, and it's the faith that comes to us from the apostles. I'm not sure I can be any more direct than that. I don't mean to be condescending to anyone who doesn't necessarily believe that, but it's like I have to scratch my head a little bit. I think Jesus was telling the truth when he said so. If there's someone that says, hey, I'm interested in learning more about the Eucharist, I'm interested in the Catholic perspective, what are some sources that you would recommend for learning more about it? So first of all, for our rally this weekend, the first part of the day is a conversation. We are bringing in several speakers to talk about the Eucharist and what the Eucharist means. Great. But then, with more precise resources, I really recommend, honestly, the nice tiny little book that Bishop Barron has just put out that, for example, we have here at the door to the church. Anyone can get a copy. This is my body. (laughs) Uh, there, There are no end of... Uh, reflections by folk on the nature of the Eucharist. And there are many out there that are very, very good. That one I recommend. Uh, I'm trying to think of other ones that I might recommend specifically, but really the best thing in terms of coming to that faith, which, which is not so much something that you get from a book or a resource, or watching videos or etc which is great but the best thing is actually to spend time in prayer with the blessed sacrament the practice of adoration 
is meant to allow that space for the heart to move. We can be convinced by many arguments, and they are very useful. And again, Jesus himself makes a pretty serious argument in the Gospels. But beyond that, it's the faith lived out. It has to be, again, our own body, our own soul that is coming to Jesus physically, really present in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. I think to that point, too, I, I would say a uh, big change for me was moving from reading about um, Catholicism and actually attending Mass and seeing the Eucharist present and seeing the celebration of it and the devotion, adoration of it as well. So I think to that, what you were saying, yeah, experiencing it rather than just reading about it. Yeah, necessary, 100%. Now, you grew up in a Catholic home. You're a cradle Catholic. Uh, was there ever moments of doubt in your life? Or talk me through like the process of understanding the Eucharist. Was not only moments of doubt, but maybe moments of like, I, oh, I get it now. Yeah. That's an interesting question, too, because I try to think of, are there moments of doubt in my history of belief in the Eucharist? And... No, I don't think so. More kind of a deepening of faith through time. There are always moments, especially like, for example, leading up to First Communion for a young Catholic, that I hope there's an invitation there to see beyond the hubbub of having to go through classes or plan a celebration and all these things kind of happening around you. And then actually going into the the matter of it. I remember before my first communion, so I was, you know, seven, eight or so, thinking how extraordinary and marvelous the Eucharist is. Not really being able to put fancy words to it, not being a theologian by any means, but awe with what is trying to be expressed in the instruction that I had. The body and blood of Christ. Okay, but what does that really mean for us? Okay, but what does that really mean? Coming to a place of, well, thinking that even I could be a priest and this could be my life. Hmm. That I, as a person, as a young person about to receive my first communion, could make this not just a celebration of today, or of one time, but rather the orientation of my life. And right then was around the time that I thought that I could probably do this and go into the priestly life. Really, it's the beginning of my vocation. Then, along the way, engaging that vocation more means, for me, also engaging the Blessed Sacrament more and truly trying to understand and try to have a very rich faith in the prayers, for example, that I have prayed as someone who is learning about how to be a priest, a time of seminary, and not just in my studies, but in my devotion, coming to a greater understanding of the Blessed Sacrament and one of the big kind of hallmark moments for me is has to be thinking of the way in which like Corpus Christi 
that particular feast day has affected me. In my family's history, Corpus Christi is a pretty important day. So my mother's family is Spanish. My mother is from Spain. And growing up, hearing about what Corpus Christi is like in her city, Toledo, was always really spectacular. And going there myself, making it a point to go to see what all that is about years ago, is one of those wonderful moments of seeing on display a lot of things. And people and pageantry, great. But there's a reason why at the heart of this. And understanding the historical reasons of why people have, over the years, made that celebration into what it is there and also throughout the world. Corpus Christi is a celebration throughout the Catholic world, a big one. And there are lots of other moments in the history of things. Like, for example, there's a great story from the Siege of Malta, which was a difficult time for sure. But even though Malta is being sieged, the defenders of Malta take it on themselves that, of course, we're not going to leave Corpus Christi behind. And so they do Corpus Christi, even though they're being sieged. <laughs> it's a big thing. It's, it's, it's quite, it's, it's a lot to get my head around. Because we think of something like a Corpus Christi celebration as being a bit gratuitous. In the sense that we do this not because it is absolutely required for the practice of the faith, like a Sunday Mass is, you know, you have to do that. Or even more basic things. This is something where you, the whole point of it is to kind of go to the top and do all the things and absolutely do a procession too and make sure that the procession is really dignified and all the details that go into forming those kinds of moments and yet at a time of distress it is still absolutely what we do mm. it's a wonderful example from history there are so many others too sure. one particular moment after my first year as a seminarian in rome that corpus christi at the end of my first academic year, we were invited to go to Orvieto, the people from the North American College, to go take part in their procession and do things. And it ended up being that at the end of the procession, the relic of the corporal that was bled on in that mass in Bolsena which is kept in Orvieto, was to be carried by us, and I was one of those guys. Hmm. There were four of us carrying it at the last stage, back into the cathedral in Orvieto. This is at the very end of the procession. Benediction is happening. It's the kind of the full conclusion of it, the climax of it. And being so close to that relic was pretty wild because it also gave me an opportunity to see it up close. And here's this cloth that has been around for, you know, 800 years, still with bloodstains, looking very real and not fake. Even though I wasn't doubting it beforehand, still it was striking to be so close to it. Mm. And carrying it in the procession was certainly quite a weight not just in a 
literal sense, but figuratively. And so there are lots of moments like that along my path, my particular journey. And being a priest, I love the Blessed Sacrament. The Eucharist is incredibly important to me. So not just as a personal fulfillment of an idea that I had as I was preparing for my first communion, but as a fulfillment not just personally, but ministerially of my vocation, I am still in awe of it. And I am tremendously grateful to God for this gift. You you talked earlier about um, the Eucharistic revival being partly at the ground roots level, the parish level. And so as a, a pastor of a parish, what are some things that you're thinking about as far as like, how do I increase the awareness, the devotion, the love of the Eucharist here at St. Mary's? So I'm going to admit that I am punting this a little bit as the point person for the whole revival in the diocese and having put so much effort into the diocesan stage. But the parish stage will also be quite something. So giving you some perspective on this, the work that I've been doing has been to form the path of the Eucharistic revival here. It's been a good while that I've been brainstorming this with friends and people who work with me, friends, to put together this fun plan. So yes, it's all coming to this big moment this coming weekend, but in order to get there, one of the things we did was these reflections at mass that we were doing all this last year, which was also very much to be able to kind of laser engrave into people's minds July 9th. (laughs) It's going to be a big thing. But in order to do that, we also wanted to give a good content for that. And before then, to kind of plan out the whole shape of this thing and get it all going. Now we're at the details stage of finishing touches, which is, again, a lot of little bit of work that we have to look at a lot of things. And when we finally set this thing up, come Saturday morning, Saturday morning at 8, Mount America Expo Center, that is when this whole thing, we're going to see it how it all works. That's a very exciting moment, almost more exciting than Sunday, because Saturday is what tells us, did we do it right? (laughs) But in all of these things, also, I've been going around to the various deaneries of our diocese and talking to the priests, to the pastors, getting them excited about it, and talking about the parish stage was very exciting, because it's not just me who has, I don't know, a Eucharistic connection in me being a priest. I'm pretty sure that priests categorically it's kind of are thing. <laughs> about the Eucharist. Exactly. So it was really fun to see them get excited about what they might do this coming year. Now is the time when actually we're hoping that the plans are really happening and not just an idea. So what I'm planning to do is have a bit of a gamified experience. So I'm going to ask people that as they go to various Eucharistic things, events, talks, service projects around the diocese, that they take a picture of it, post it on Instagram, Use a hashtag, which isn't active yet. I'm sorry. And we've been doing a couple other things, but check back in a couple months. But it's something like, you know, Eucharistic Revival Salt Lake or something like that. Something obvious. And then later um, to, from those, 
find some candidates who hopefully will like write an essay and will scholarship them to the Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm not done by any means with the diocesan point person Eucharistic revival work that I'm doing. So what are we doing here? Well, we're, we're still doing the, the big picture thing. And obviously, you know, that, that will kind of have to be enough simply because we are out of resources to do more in terms of time and energy. But very realistically, I also don't feel bad about it because the Eucharistic life in the parish, I think, is pretty good. We have a couple holy hours a week that I think are beautiful. And our masses, we try to do very well. We, we are doing these things. And throughout the year, we have our summits that people come to. And hopefully this coming year, they can be mostly Eucharistic in idea. We haven't quite put the schedule yet together. Uh, so one thing at a time. But the bigger thing is, and more in response to the question, that I'm hoping that people will go around the diocese and experience the Eucharist in a variety of different contexts, not just at Mass or adoration, but also in the more practical things. I'm very excited about the service projects that some parishes have planned for this and to participate in them and to let people know that they're participating in them. Mm. I love it. Gamification. Be a, oh, be a yeah, lot of fun. absolutely. That'll be yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about the, um, the Eucharistic rally that's happening this Sunday. Mm. Um, can you give us kind of a, a little bit more of a preview of, of what to expect? Well, it's going to be quite a thing. So we have a giant location. The Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy is huge. And we have a morning program with a number of events. So we have Bishop Daniel Flores speaking, Dr. Timothy O'Malley. We also have Dr. Jose Antonio Medina, things in English, things in Spanish. We also have adoration going on. We also have confessions available and a bunch of priests. And we also have exhibitors. But honestly, probably the coolest things are going to be especially for the young people. So there are a couple things going on Concurrently, there's a teen rally happening, which seems really, really cool, with uh, Ben Acosta coming to do that. And then also this really neat Camino for the younger kids. Essentially, it's a, an exhibit for kids that they follow a path, they go to these various stations along the way, there's something which is being taught, I suppose, but there's also like a little activity and they get to like try on the habit for, I don't know, a Franciscan and a variety of others. It's very interactive, it's hands-on, as these things should be. And like, like going through these giant models of churches, like there's this model of the cathedral that we have, you walk through it. Oh, wow. Yeah, quite something. Yeah. And coloring books at the end. You know, it's, but it's... It's geared toward a particular age group of those who are inquisitive enough and not yet too old that they would, like, for example, would better benefit from going to the teen rally. But that is going to be fun, especially for the kinetic learners out there. 
because they'll be able to interact in really neat ways. So the day has this morning, but then also mass for everyone in the afternoon. There's a break in the middle, go get lunch. Lunch is available, food for purchase in a variety of locations, all kinds of things. It's a very well-situated place. Lots of, lots of things are available very nearby and including a concession stand there at the Expo Center. Mass for everyone will be huge. So it'll be fun, though. I, I really am looking forward to this because it'll be, even though one giant mass for like, you know, 8,000, 9,000, 10,000 people, I think it will go pretty well. We've been working on the plan for this very, very carefully. And the you know the logistics aside, what is it? It's the whole church being present to itself. It's a huge number of Catholics in the Diocese of Salt Lake City throughout the state of Utah coming together for one particular mass. The bishop is the celebrant, the priests are there, the deacons are there, the various religious are there, the parishes are there. Everyone who is part of this Catholic experience in Utah is there. And it's going to be wild to see that whole thing in real life together. We haven't done that in a long, long time. Back when I was serving at altar, you know, an altar server, it's St. Olaf and Bountiful when I was a kid, there was this picture on the wall of something that happened. And it was this kind of, the color was kind of a little bit off, so you could tell it was kind of an old picture of this big thing of mass and lots of people there and this huge background, lots of scenery. And seeing that many years ago kind of put the idea in my head, like, well, first of all, what is this? And why don't we do this more often? Well, it was the bicentennial celebration. So in 1976, the diocese got together for a huge celebration. And it was about the bicentennial, not of our country. Happy Independence Day, by the way. Yeah, happy this Independence is, Day. We're doing this on July 3rd. <laughs> but rather the bicentennial of Christianity in Utah. So the Dominguez Escalante expedition happened in 1776, hmm. along with other things in other places elsewhere on the same continent. So the Franciscans come up into Utah, and that is kind of the beginning of the Catholic story in this geographical area. So we had a giant celebration of the Catholic Church in Utah then. We also had a couple other things, like, for example, uh, Bishop Wiegand's ordination as bishop. But that was a while ago. So I'm 40 years old. I was, I was born in 1983. 1976 was before then. <laughs> it's been a while since we've gotten together to have a big gathering like this. And so... When it came to think about things that we could do for the Eucharistic revival here, well, one of the aspects of the Eucharist, which is so important, which we talk about, but don't necessarily get to experience directly, 
is the body of Christ, also the people, the church together. This is one of the aspects of the Eucharist and how we are a people formed as one by the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ, and that body, which is the people of God, are, you know, the same in different ways. We can talk about it sacramentally, we can talk about it ecclesiologically, but quintessentially, we're talking about something that has to be the same thing on some level. And so... Coming together as one for this is tremendously important. And you've been the point person for this, for the whole revival uh, here in the diocese, correct? And so um, tell me a little bit about this process of coming up with these plans. Who else was involved? Was it, you know, uh, who thought of some of these uh, hands-on activities with the kids, things like that? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a fun story. So back in 2020... The bishop asked me to be the point person for the revival. And so I spent the next uh, several months, not quite a year, thinking about what we could possibly do. Because the Eucharistic revival wasn't going to really be getting into gear until 2022, the beginning of the diocesan stage, then the parish stage 2023, finally the national in 2024. So for the first time in all of my memory, we had plenty of time to think about this. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> I mean, pardon, pardon the sarcasm. It's just that it was, it was really a, a wonderful gift to have time to sit with it. Not just spring it up like, uh, exactly. hey, next month we want to get Precisely. <laughs> so especially in 2020, it was a time to think about a time that might be beyond the COVID experience that we had in 2020, something different, something more. And so started churning around these ideas and made a presentation to the bishop of the plan in 2021. He liked it. And so we started moving things to get things ready that by the beginning of 2022, so March of 2022, pretty much everything was really squared away so that we could start doing like for example those reflections at mass in the fall of 2022 and everything could just go from there Hmm. so around that time i also began getting a team of people together to start working on the various ideas and i already had an inkling of some people that i really wanted to work with to allow them to have this canvas, be creative, think about the various ways in which we do church together, our various parish experiences, take away some of the limitations that we have in them. Consider what it might be if we were to simply paint with giant strokes on a huge canvas. And it was from that perspective that we began meeting again in 2022 in the in the spring to come together and start making a plan. So all last summer we were thinking about this and the people involved in this are absolutely rock stars. So closely with the diocese, I've been working with Ruth Dillon of the Office of Worship, the director, and also 
um, her staff also, specifically for the rally, uh, Matthew Pauly and Kim Tosti, wonderful at organizing everything. They're the ones who are really making all of the things happen. And then various other leaders with them. For example, uh, speaking of the kids zone, the family zone of the rally, that whole programming in the morning is uh, Juliana, Ju- Juliana Boerio Goats, Julie, who is brilliant, wonderful person, and it was so much fun to see her mind work on this. And a bunch of others. I mean, we could go through the whole list, right, right. but maybe this isn't exactly the time. <laughs> but thank you also, Chris Hunsinger, Deacon Tom Tosti, and Keller Rodell, and my mom also, the Office of Hispanic Ministry, and helping to make a lot of these things possible. And uh, Maria Devereaux, and... Um, a bunch of others. Anthony Jewett, thank you. Uh, Ray and Lisa Bachelor got on board early to do logistics. Unfortunately, Ray passed away. And so um, th- this is something which has been near and dear to our hearts. And it's been a wonderful group of people. And so many of you, I'm sorry if I didn't list you just now. Rachel, thank you for your help with the fundraising. You know, we, we can go like to town and say nothing of like, and thank you to our sponsors <laughs> uh, who, who have actually made this thing real. So in order to do this, it of course costs a bit to rent a giant space and have it, you know, with light and sound and projection and chairs and stuff in the giant space. Uh, and so in order to make all of this happen, I was also fundraising and we've had many generous donors, both businesses and individuals, to help make this a reality. It has been quite a journey. Yeah, what an and I'm very, very grateful. What an undertaking while you're pastoring at St. Mary's. As yes. Well. <laughs> and oh, by the way, yes. <laughs> um, did you get any input from other what other dioceses are doing? Are they oh, yes. are how is that? You know, what are other dioceses doing in this process as well? So throughout, we have had meetings of the various diocesan point persons on the Eucharistic arrival, and it's been really interesting to hear about other people's plans. Hmm. And a lot of them are a bit smaller than ours. So this is a bit of an undertaking. It is pretty big. And mostly what we've had are examples of the diocese and helping the parishes do more Eucharistic things. For example, um, in certain places, organizing Eucharistic recessions in neighborhoods or bigger areas that encompass several parishes to promote that kind of working together, which is great. A lot of really cool things out there. So whenever we get together on these meetings or by Zoom, I mention what we're doing and people are kind of taken aback, like, oh, oh my. <laughs> That's awesome. Kind of a big, big thing. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, as people prepare for this weekend, what are some things they can be doing to get in the mindset, praying about um, the rally? Uh, what would you suggest? First of all, pray for the success of the rally. Uh, some time ago, I asked parishes to consider having maybe an extra holy hour on Saturday night for the sake of having like a little uh, prayer vigil 
kind of for the rally. I don't know how many of them are actually doing that, but regardless, especially Saturday night, consider praying in a special way for the success of the rally. Uh, to get in the mindset, well, there's lots of information out there on the particulars. And of course, there's a website, the diocesan website right there, Eucharistic Revival. And you can get a lot of information about how the day is going to go that way. But otherwise, really, the whole thing about it was to allow people to come without having to put a lot of work into it beforehand. Mm-hmm. In much the same way as going to church is relatively easy. You find out when church is happening and you go to church then, you know, and uh, on that same kind of model to make it accessible. As we move forward from the rally, what are some things people can be doing to um, prepare themselves for celebrating Mass and, and being in the presence of the Eucharist? We can always do a better job of preparing ourselves, especially right before Mass. The time before Mass for prayer is a very privileged time. So is the time right after Mass for prayer. It's a wonderful time to make an act of preparation, an act of thanksgiving that should always happen. And the more we can cut out that little bit of time to pray around Mass before and after, even if it's not necessarily like right before or right after, to allow that to be a time of being prepared of asking the Holy Spirit, of asking the angels and saints, of asking God to be with us. And in the time of making our communion, to also allow that communion to persist in us, to extend that grace, to bring our time of thanksgiving to not just be whatever time that we do carve out, but hopefully our whole life. Well, thank you, Father Grave, so much for meeting with me. And thank you for all the work that you're doing with the, with the rally this weekend, but also the revival in general. You are most welcome. Thank you for asking about it. I'm so thankful for Father Grave for sitting down with me and sharing his thoughts about the Eucharistic revival and rally, as well as his love for the Eucharist. It's a real treat to be able to participate in a Mass where Father Gray is presiding. He brings a spirit of reverence and love to the liturgy, and especially the Eucharist. I've included a number of links in the show notes. First, there's a link to more information about the Eucharistic revival happening in the United States. Secondly, I've linked to details about the July 9th Eucharistic rally for the Diocese of Salt Lake. If you're in Utah, please note that there will be no Masses taking place at local parishes on July 9th, 2023. Instead, we will all gather for one giant Mass at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. The rally is completely free, and it begins at 9 a.m. with tons of activities for all ages, and Mass will begin at 2 p.m. If you're in the area, you do not want to miss this historic event. I've also included links in the show notes to some resources that will be helpful, including Bishop Barron's short book, This Is My Body. And I've also linked to my previous episodes where I focused on the Eucharist. It begins with episode 9, The Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Episode 10 is called The Center of Existence. The series continues with episode 14 called The Eucharist Throughout History. Father Gray mentioned Eucharistic miracles, and I covered that topic in episode 15. And I concluded my series on the Eucharist with episode 16 called The Eucharist Changes Every Thing. Remember, each episode is about 17 minutes in length, so I hope you'll take a listen. Let me end by expressing my sincere thanks to Father Gray and a huge thank you to all those who have been working with him over the years to bring to fruition the July 9th Eucharistic Rally for the Diocese of Salt Lake City. 
And for all those around the country who are also assisting with your respective Eucharistic revivals, thank you. Thank you for promoting this most important treasure, the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.